2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Um, our guest today is Jim Surmeyer. He is the Nathan Smith Davis Professor and Chair of the Department of Physiology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. He also leads one of the longest running of the, I think, nine at this point, national uh, NIH-funded Udall Centers for Excellence in Parkinson's Disease Research. Jim has a, a long history of important work in fundamental mechanisms of basal ganglia network function, in molecular and biophysical characterization of neurons and how neuromodulators, specifically dopamine and serotonin, alter ion channel circuits and behavior. He's a key player in translational research on Parkinson's disease, which is, I think, where we'll start off our discussion today and see where it takes us. Hi, Jim. Hi. Uh, around the room, we've got kind of a big group today, so um, listen carefully to everybody's voices here. We've got Asif Maruf. Hello. We've got Matt Wanett. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. As always, hi, Charlie. We've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Um, Carlos Palladini. Hello. And Alfonso Apicella. Hello. And I'm your host, as usual, Selma Karashi. So one of the challenges to Parkinson's disease research has been to identify the, the primary insult. Um, so we often start with, the, with pathological observations of a, of a loss of dopamine neurons or a histological presence of Lewy pathology, and then try to connect these to clinical observations of the, of the disease. But, I mean, diseases are, are complex phenomena, right? And um, can you say something about, so you're, you're a quantitative thinker. You think in terms of models and mechanism. Can you say something about your vantage point on how um, best to build roadmaps for modeling disease before we get into some specifics about Parkinson's? This is supposed to be a soft question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's... <laughs> so, so um, I mean, uh, I can use the example of both uh, Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease, two diseases that we've attacked, and, and I think the same applies for Alzheimer's disease. So I'm interested in circuitry in the brain and how neurons function, and one of the things that's always been striking to me about those diseases is that they... They don't affect all neurons equally. They affect some neurons and leave others relatively intact. Um, and it is certainly true of Parkinson's disease, where the pathology is distributed. It's not just limited to, to compact neurons. As a matter of fact, in the earliest stages of the disease, the pathology, the Lewy pathology, appears in the caudal medulla. Um, but the, the first clear signs of neuronal loss are in the compacto. But even if you include both Lewy pathology and cell loss, it's a tiny fraction of all the neurons in the brain that are affected by the disease. And so that come, I think that's a, an incredible clue about pathogenesis. So if we knew what was distinctive about those neurons that were at risk, we might understand pathogenesis better. We might understand how the disease evolves. And um, that's certainly been our strategy, and it's, it's what has led us to this whole hypothesis that it's... Um, it's a bioenergetic crisis that leads compact neurons and the other neurons that are at risk in Parkinson's disease to uh, accelerated aging and dysfunction. So, again, it's, it's the pattern of pathology. What's distinctive about the neurons that are particularly vulnerable to those diseases? I think that's an incredible clue. So when you say early pathology, mm -hmm. uh, how, how early is early? Like, how do we... How, in, 
are there good genetic models that allow us to sort of track things early? Are we, where are we, because I, I, I mean, I, I, there's a, there's some studies that show that olfactory bulb has some um, generation of Lewy bodies early, at early points too. And so I'm, when I hear this word early, I always wonder where are we talking about in right. the temporal scheme? Right. So for Parkinson's disease, there are no biomarkers that predate or that will, that will predict onset of motor symptoms. Right, so um, there, there's certainly a lot of interest in having a biomarker that would, um, for example, tell you that five years from now you're going to develop motor symptoms and uh, characteristic of Parkinson's disease, but there's nothing that's been validated yet. So the only thing, when I say early, um, people who've looked at brain pathology, human brain pathology, um, have taken people with a pattern of Lewy pathology that matches that of patients that have become symptomatic and said that Lewy pathology must have appeared before the onset of symptoms. It's a complete conjecture. There's no longitudinal study of humans that actually demonstrates that that's true. Um, but um, that's an inference. Um, so I, I think that's a little bit problematic. But what I, I was really thinking about was in the very early stages of the disease when patients first begin to manifest symptoms, what does the brain look like? Um, one of the huge limitations in the field is that in spite of the fact that we know that there are genetic mutations associated with familial forms of the disease, about 10% or so of the cases have got a, um, a genetic determinant, <laughs> none of those genetic mutations produce Parkinson's disease in a mouse, unfortunately. And we don't know why that is. I mean, my guess is that it's not because the mutations are not related to the disease or do not cause the human disease. It's just that the other major risk factor in Parkinson's disease is aging. And I have the opinion that mice do not age the same way that humans do. And that that feature of the disease is, is not recapitulated in the mice. So the average age of a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is 60 years old. That's true for essentially most of the familial forms of the disease um, with the dominant mutations. The only deviation from that are the recessive mutations, which have much earlier onset. So point is that even with a genetic mutation, age is a very important factor. And I think that in the mice, we're not we're not recapitulating that. We don't understand how the brain ages, quite frankly, in my view. So um, you mentioned that it's the pattern that gives you this clue, which I guess you could view that as two different ways, right? One is the pattern is a result of um, some special vulnerability of the cells that die early on. Right. And the other one is there's something exogenous, I suppose, that attacks those cells. Um, and there's nothing really special about those. So, so one is there's a general insult, such as aging, and it's just that the dopamine cells in compact are the ones that are most vulnerable to that for some reason. The other one is that, for some reason, something... Like something you ate. Or something you ate, perhaps, attacks dopamine cells, gets to dopamine cells, and not the rest of the brain. Right. Um, well, it gets to the rest of the brain. As a, matter, as a matter of fact, I think the predominant theory of pathogenesis in the Parkinson's disease field is has nothing to do with selective vulnerability. It has to do that people claim that Parkinson's disease is a prion disorder, that in fact that um, 
you ingest a pathogen. It's transmitted through the gut mucosa to uh, vagal neurons that innervate the mucosa, and it's propagated back up to the caudal medulla and then spreads through the brain, um, uh, producing Lewy pathology and sorry, Lewy pathology and uh, death and destruction in its wake. Right? Or you sniff something that um, you know. It's another. It's an interface. With, between you and the outside world. So, um, I mean, this is one of the things I want to talk about today. If you look at the, at the connectome of the brain, what we know about the connectome, and ask whether or not the, the connectome is consistent with a simple prion model, I think the conclusion is that it's not. That doesn't mean that there's not spreading. It just means that some other factor, like selective vulnerability, must be um, a determinant of the extent of that spreading or whether a cell is vulnerable to the challenge that spreading of uh, a synuclein, misfolded alpha-synuclein, for example, would pose to it. So... Um, What's the connection, then, between alpha-synuclein and Lewy bodies and, Parkinson's, and Parkinson's disease? I mean, Lewy bodies are in all kinds of places where neurodegeneration isn't, right? And then... And it's not true? particular to Parkinson's disease either. Right. So there are... So uh, let me give the pro and then I'll give the con. Because okay. I'm, I'm definitely... I, I think that it plays a role, but it, it's not in the way that people have thought. So, yes. So um, there is Lewy pathology in disorders that don't involve degeneration of dopaminergic neurons. So... Dementia with Lewy bodies, for example, doesn't always involve Parkinson's, Parkinism or Parkinson's disease. Um, there are parts of the brain that manifest Lewy pathology which never show any signs of degeneration. There are parts of the brain which show degeneration in Parkinson's disease but never have Lewy pathology. Right? The, the, one of the things that we, I've done with a human neuropathologist is attempt to construct a timeline for neurodegeneration and for Lewy pathology to see whether they align. Even if you restrict your attention to the major regions of Lewy pathology in the Parkinson's disease brain. And the bottom line is they don't align. In fact, cell degeneration in the compacta appears before there's any measurable Lewy pathology there, whether it's Lewy pathology in the caudal medulla by inference. Now, the, so the, the thing about it is, though, that, uh, that one of the major components of Lewy pathology is alpha-synuclein. There's no question but that mutations in alpha-synuclein, alpha-synuclein duplication and triplication significantly increases your chances of getting Parkinson's disease. Lewy pathologies are a very, very common component of the pathology in Parkinson's disease. So it's linked. The question is exactly how. Now, there are a lot of people who think that Lewy pathologies are simply a safe accumulation of intracellular junk that is a sign of successful coping with the stress uh, that they're experiencing. Um, but there are other people who think that it's it, it really is a harbinger of, of degeneration. So um, I think based upon, again, the human work, uh, that 
Louis pathology is associated, but it's, it's very difficult to explain the pattern of cell death uh, on the basis of any Louis-centric hypothesis. But, again, it's difficult to explain the nominal pattern of Louis pathology on the basis of intrinsic vulnerability, too. I can't explain that. I don't know why it would originate in the olfactory bulb or in the caudal medulla if it wasn't spreading from the periphery. So, um, unless there's some other mechanism involved, and I think that uh, I think the relationship between Louis pathology and the other thing is the pathophysiology. It's easiest to link the pathophysiology, that is, the symptoms of the disease and network dysfunction to cell death. It is very difficult to draw a connection between Louis pathology, the severity of Louis pathology, and symptoms. So one of the things that strikes me about all this human neuropathology of disease is how correlational it is. There's basically, there's no uh, causation anywhere in this. It's like, does my correlation happen earlier than your correlation or more? Consistent in your correlation. It's just yeah, difficult to get, get volunteers for those experiments. <laughs> <laughs> how, can, how can we escape from this, though, and, and put the you know, Parkinson's disease on experimental footing? I guess, that's why, I guess, I guess that's why there, there are these models in mice and rats. But they end up being correlational, right? Here's yeah, a gene that's correlated with the disease. Yeah. You know, it seems to me that... Uh, it is an attempt to imitate in mice the same not very successful scientific approach that, you know, a naturalistic observation scientific approach that's used in humans. And there must be, if we've got mice, there must be a way out where we can, we can do a genuine experiment and infer causation. From a human? Doing a real experiment in a human? And well, in humans would be great, but in mice or in something, somehow. Well, so those are called clinical trials. Yeah. Right? So we have one that's ongoing right now, right? So we're testing the selective vulnerability idea and, and the role of calcium bioenergetic control. The trouble with it is, is that they're very long and very expensive experiments to do, right? So you and can't so, fail at them very often. Hmm? You can't let them fail very often. Or they all have failed so far. So, <laughs> I mean, and I'm hoping that this one doesn't fail, but uh, they f- fail much more often than they succeed. So it seems to me that the, the, the secret to designing an experiment is to have a um, hypothetical line of causation. Uh, so maybe that alpha-synuclein prion thing is a hypothetical line of causation that, is, that predicts all the correlations and stuff, but it gives you the opportunity to test it. The alternatives, what are the alternatives? So hypothetical lines of causation that connect something that causes the disease to something that produces the symptoms of the disease and that allows uh, experimental manipulation and intervention that would allow you to infer causation in the end. Do we know what prions are involved? Yeah, so it, it, mm-hmm. Do we know what prions are involved? No, it's not. I mean, it's a prion-like protein. So misfolded alpha-synuclein has prion-like properties. That is, it induces misfolding of endogenous alpha-synuclein it aggregates, it can be released and propagate to an adjacent cell. So which are all features of a of a prion. So that it's really prion like. Okay. So has anybody exogenously applied alpha synuclein into say the you know, the pars compacta 
versus, you know, the ventral tegmental area and they say, you know, resulting selective degradation of the dopamine neurons. In yes. The, so, in fact, this is what has gotten this field really ramped up and generated so much excitement and enthusiasm is that uh, people tried this for years with monomeric alpha-synuclein, tried overexpressing it. Never saw any evidence of spread. Um, uh, but a few years ago, Virginia Lee and John Trojanowski created um, fibrils of aggregated alpha-synuclein and then broke them into little pieces and injected them into the striatum. Didn't inject them into the Niagara, but injected them into the striatum. And found that those um, pieces of alpha-synuclein fibril were taken up by neurons and then spread to other parts of the brain. And when they looked in Capacta, they found that uh, the, the neurons that had taken this up from their axons that innervated the striatum um, began to degenerate. So that's an interesting perspective that it's saying that it's from the terminals coming back to the cell bodies as opposed to something that would be unique as properties in the cell bodies or is there sort of debate in the field as to, again, there's a lot of debate about where Parkinson's start, but that's an intriguing idea that it could go backwards, but that would solve sort of the conundrum of why are the, the ventral pigmentary dopamine neurons relatively spared, whereas, you know, the substantia nigra ones are not. So, well, is this one no, self-selective I mean, at all? Huh? Was it self-selective? No, they didn't do that. They didn't ask that question. They simply looked and compacted. It seemed like it spread to other regions, but they didn't look at degeneration of those other regions. They didn't look at whether or not it was a faithful retrograde label. Um, and the, all, all those questions have actually not been pursued very rigorously. Even, though, even now? That's even, now even now. Um, because... People are, the people who are pursuing this, by and large, are, in my view, are not people who know very much about neuroanatomy um, and are much more interested in the cell biological questions, right? I mean, how is it taken up? How is a fibril fragment taken up? How is it um, endocytosed? How does it go from an endocytic vesicle to the cytoplasm? For example, how is it released? How Those would be super interesting questions if you knew this was actually the mechanism of the disease. Well, <laughs> right. So, so the, but to go back, we, one of the things we wanted to do is to just to try and deal with a human question a little bit, to, to do a thought experiment. But, that is, the connectomics we can't do in humans very well, but we can do those in, that in rodents. So to ask the question, is the pattern of Lewy pathology in humans consistent with the connectome? That is, if we make the assumption that the connectome of a mouse and a human are pretty close to one another. Right? So that's a kind of a an experiment, and, and it, it's very clear. So, for example, one of the really interesting things that came out of that is that synuclein never spreads to GABAergic neurons. Never. Huh. No matter where they are. So one of the one of the places where there's lots of Lewy pathology is locus ferulis, for example. The monosynaptic rabies virus stuff has shown that one of the major sites of innervation of locus ferulis is cerebellum. Cerebellum never manifests Lewy pathology in Parkinson's disease patients. And if you go and we know another good example, the substantia nigra manifests Lewy pathology, but there's never any postsynaptic Lewy pathology in stridum or globus pallidus or reticulata. All those gabergic neurons which innervate, so there's something different about gabergic neurons. And so even, but so the question is, is there spread? We still don't have a convincing answer to that. It's theoretically possible in animal models to, to take 
a synuclein derivative, as these fibrils, and to see propagation. It's mostly retrograde, there, but in cell culture it can be anterograde as well. Um, but it's it's not clear whether that's the mechanism in Parkinson's disease. Is that possible then that it's not only convection, but it's also the ion channel that these different cells express? Something like that. Something like that. So Ted, Ted Dawson just had a paper suggesting that there's a, a surface receptor that binds fibrillar alpha-synuclein. It's a... It's a, it's a receptor that is normally involved in, um, in regulating um, uh, immunological function. And so, but it's, it's hijacked, apparently, by alpha-synuclein to endocytose, uh, extracellular uh, uh, fibrils of alpha-synuclein. It, it's not universally expressed. It's only expressed by some cells and not others. And I haven't mapped it carefully because I don't have a good antibody for it. But it, it, so I think actually, again that that it's a combination of things. It's it's not just the uptake, but it's how well cells can deal with the proteostatic stress associated with uh, alpha synuclein fibrils. I mean, cells can chew them up or spit them back out again, and if they're challenged proteostatically, that is, if they're turning over lots of proteins themselves because of their their metabolic makeup. Um, then they may be less capable of dealing with that kind of challenge, and so shuttle that those fibrils off into a pile that we call a Lewy body, right? um, and ultimately may may become vulnerable to to that. So one of the things that we've been we've been doing is actually trying to ask that question: is, is if I look at a compact neuron and uh, ask. Is it challenged from a proteostatic standpoint? Is it, that is, is it turning over lots of proteins normally and degrading lots of proteins? And the answer is yes. In fact, they're turning over their mitochondria very rapidly because of oxidant stress in the mitochondria. Mitophagy and autophagy, which are the two, are part of the same sort of um, protein degradative machineries in, in neurons. Um, I think it cells have got a finite capacity for autophagy. If half of it's being used up degrading mitochondria, they don't have an, much in the way of spare capacity to deal with any kind of proteostatic challenge coming from propagated alpha-synuclein fibrils. So I think it's, it's a combination of physiology, maybe might not be the ion channel, but something about the, the makeup of the cells in addition to maybe being presented through s some sort of spreading mechanism with a challenge. So how does that connect up to your ideas about what make dopamine cells and some other cells vulnerable. Is there a is, and your uh, and your clinical trial? So there's a is this a connection between these ideas to make a grand unified theory? Of We're Parkinson's always stretching disease? for a grand unified theory of, of <laughs> Parkinson's disease. So, but I, I think yes. So okay. So the, the the basic idea is this: is that, and I, I'm going to use this term, and I'm, I'm kind of today, and I'm going to. I'm really interested about what kind of response I get. I'm going to, I'm going to, because I was trying to make this talk a, an accessible talk, so I had to come up with a, a way of labeling dopaminergic neurons in compactus. So I'm going to call them sentinels. That is their watch, their, their lookouts, right? When something interesting or happens in the environment, they, they change their discharge rate. 
whether to go up or go down, and it, but that, that discharge rate is necessary for mobilization of the basal ganglia. This is also in, so for purposeful goal-directed action or habits, depending upon you know the situation. But they definitely those those sentinel neurons are critical to functioning of the basal ganglia, and um, and to to escape or attack. Right? So it's, it's a circuitry that's 500 million years old. Right? But it's also true of locus ceruleus. It's also true probably of Raffae. It's true of lateral hypothalamus and the eruxa neurons. It's arousal in a different sort of way. It's true of basal forebrain cholinergic cells. It's true of gigantocellularis, which is responsible for getting the, you know, the stepping circuitry going in the spinal cord. Um, it's, it's probably also true for the autonomics, like dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus, um, which is involved in you know, controlling autonomic activation in response to threat. So in the, all those cells have a common set of characteristics. They have extremely long, highly arborized axons because they modulate large volumes of tissue. They almost all, I mean, the, the data said on this is incomplete, but all the cells that we've looked at, we've looked at DMV, we've looked at locus, other people have looked at Rafe. Um, it's true in lateral hypothalamus, it's true in basal forebrain. All those cells are slow, autonomous pacemakers. Okay. I think those cells have been so critical to the survival of animals that they are engineered in a way that um, ensures that they don't ever stop in response to a challenge or arousal, for example, being pursued by a predator or going after potential food. Um, and that comes down to bioenergetics. These cells all um, have got a sort of feed for bioenergetic control system, which, like in muscle, leads to um, uh, both it, it's electrogenic, it helps maintain the pacemaking, but it also stimulates uh, respiration, oxidative phosphorylation of mitochondria. Now, under most, under situations of need, that's not problematic. The trouble with it is, is that they're anticipating need all the time. They're on the edge all the time. And so they stimulate mitochondria even in the absence of ATP demand, which means the mitochondria hyperpolarize. And when the mitochondria hyperpolarize, electrons along the electron transport chain stall and they jump to oxygen and produce reactive oxygen species. So the basal oxidant stress in those mitochondria is elevated, it's high. And it's true in DMV, it's true in locus, and it's true in compactor. We've not looked in other places. We need to look in PPN, we need to look in lateral hypothalamus. But the bottom line is that leads to, over time, that leads to mitochondrial DNA deletions. In humans, you see mitochondrial DNA deletions exactly as you would predict by sustained elevation in mitochondrial oxidant stress. Those mitochondrial DNA deletions over time lead to impaired mitochondrial function. And impaired mitochondrial function leads to ultimately senescence and, um, and um, cells losing phenotype. The other thing it does is um, mitochondria are constantly being damaged and having to be turned over. So it engages the mitophagy, autophagy <coughs> machinery of the cell. So they have a big proteostatic load all the time, which makes them, I think, more vulnerable to any other proteostatic stressors and so more likely to just say, look, I can't degrade it. We're going to stick it over here into a Louis body and let it sit. I mean, you, I think 
that, and that, in my mind, explains why Lewy pathology comes along with this, although it's not um, a strong predictor of degeneration. I think that the mitochondrial dysfunction is the clearest predictor of degeneration. So all these things that you mentioned are still present in rodents, right? So they're autonomous pacemakers, as, yep. as all this thing. Yet you mentioned that rodents don't develop Parkinson's. So what's right. special about rodents or special about humans in this sense? So this still could happen in humans, but perhaps rodents have some extra layer of protection to this oxidative stress. It's possible, but you know, the, the recordings that we've done and measurements we've done in human IPS cells make them look just like compactors from a rodent. I mean, that could be a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because yeah. the, the human neurons are always immature. Because, right? there's you know, they're a year old, and you know, you've got kids, I've got kids. Humans develop very slowly, right? Yeah. They're not mature for a long time. So if you take a, a, a skin cell out of an old person yeah. and differentiate it into a dopamine cell, is it a young dopamine cell or is it an old dopamine cell? Yeah, it depends upon how you do it. So there are a lot of people experimenting with this now. The way that it has traditionally been done is that they've revert them to um, a young, a, 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 a pluripotent stage. And in the process of doing that, erase all of the epigenetic markers associated with aging, right? And also lengthen telomeres. That's part of the process, right? To, to get them back to an early young stage. And then they push them into a particular lineage, right? Into the dopamine cell lineage or cortical cell lineage. So, but there are people experimenting now with direct differentiation protocols of fibroblasts, and some of those epigenetic markers associated with aging are retained. Now, the question is whether they're fibroblast epigenetic markers or neuronal epigenetic markers, but be that as it may, they're ostensibly older cells um, and beginning to look at whether or not they have different behavior and different functions. I think it's too early to know at this point, whether or not that's going to be true. But it, to, to go back to Carlos's point, I, I think it, there's something fundamentally different about the way in which a rodent ages and the way we age. That in we do not recapitulate in the three years of a rodent's life the 60 years of a human's life. And, and so the question is, what is that? What is it that's different? And again, I, I, there are lots of possibilities. Um, I mean, again, mitochondrial dysfunction has been one of the things that's been associated with aging. There are a lot of theories about aging and mitochondrial function. Um, maybe in the three years of a rodent, we don't recapitulate all of the mitochondrial damage that accumulates in a human. Accumulative effect down over 60 years. But if a mouse lived for 60 years, that they then maybe it would get Parkinson's. Right, absolutely. But, I mean, so there, but what we're trying to do is actually humanize mice. So, um, telomere shortening, I think, actually is one of the things that causes neurons to age. Um, oxidant stress, and there's actually, we have some preliminary data from a, a European colleague that you know, Birgit, um, who has looked at telomere length in human uh, neurons from compacta, cerebellum, and cortex. And telomere length appears to be shorter in compacta as if that oxidant stress 
actually begins to shorten telomeres and age those cells more rapidly than others. So um, rodents have longer telomeres when they die than we have when we're born. So they have extraordinarily long telomeres. And it, the, the sort of organismal decision about this is a trade-off between cancer risk and longevity. Right? With excessively long telomeres, you don't limit the tissue's ability to divide in a cancer, right? So um, we, we, cancer is a significant factor for us, and so we've, I think we've evolved to have shorter telomeres. Um, so the, there's a way of shortening a, the telomeres in a rodent by either deleting the template for the telomerase, which lengthens them, or um, deleting the enzyme, which actually does the lengthening uh, of the telomeres. And so you can back-cross those mice. And it's interesting. I mean, by, in C57 Black 6, when you delete TURC, which is a telomerase template, you know, they look, by the time they're three or four weeks old, the mice look really old and they don't reproduce. And so it's an interesting aging model. So <laughs> this is a very difficult one to study because it's hard to get the animals to breed. And the colonies are very small and all that kind of stuff. So, so they're old age before they even reach puberty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. So, maybe but don't, I maybe don't shorten them quite so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. But then it's a trade-off. We want to see whether, in fact, that's that. In fact, I mean, the other thing that's difficult about those mice is that the telomeres are shorter all over the place. So we can see a change in the brain, but and we don't know for sure in that case whether it's because of the change in brain function or whether it's because of change in liver function or cardiac function and stuff. And so there's, you know, there's ways in which we could selectively delete this telomerase linking enzyme or a lengthening enzyme in, in dopaminergic neurons, but we just haven't got there yet. I, I want to know that it's actually a good strategy. I mean, again, it's one of those things. I, I, I'm not, <clears throat> this is a little bit out of my area of, of expertise. Right? It comes from talking with my cancer biology friends and things like that. And I'm, I'm a little bit worried that it's, uh, it's an investment that won't pay off. But. So you're bringing up what I think is an interesting point sort of about the you know, butterfly flapping its wings effect, where this might be problematic for treatments of Parkinson's disease. I mean, as you were sort of alluding to is that some of the unique characteristics of you know, the dopamine neurons that are susceptible are sort of beneficial for the function of these neurons. And the sort of simple, you know, approach of, well, let's make these neurons like the neurons that don't die might actually elicit sort of problems in sort of basic function, sort of similar also to, you know, the telomere type length of, okay, maybe if it's, you know, the telomere shortening, if we make the telomeres longer in, you know, the susceptible neurons, maybe now we're going to end up having cancer. And I guess, is, is that something that's sort of been borne out in a lot of the sort of challenges of coming up with a viable therapy to treat Parkinson's diseases? The, the attempts to sort of, you know, treat the problem creates a whole cascade of additional problems. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think um, therapeutic strategies that target enzymes that have are proteins that have lots and lots of very basic functions are potentially problematic because the side effect profiles are going to be worse than the disease. Um, in in our particular case, uh, we got a little bit lucky. Um, <clears throat> so um, 
I mean, not us, but I mean, lots of people that identified L-type calcium channels as potentially contributing to this, um, to the sort of unique physiology of compactant neurons. Um, and uh, it, it turns out that um, those channels, the channels that underlie that, that physiology are widely distributed. They're present in the cardiovascular system. Um, uh, predominantly a, a close relative of the, I think, the, the calcium channel that's really responsible in, in compactive, but the pharmacological agents that target those peripheral channels didn't distinguish very readily between um, the specific channel in compactive and the one in the cardiovascular system. Now, those drugs that target the channel in the cardiovascular system have been used for decades to treat hypertension. And... Um, so they help relax vascular smooth muscle by um, uh, inhibiting those channels. Turns out those drugs are negative allosteric modulators, which is, I think is very important to the side effect profile. They're not channel blockers. Um, they uh, change the gating profile of, of the L-type calcium channels by inter interacting with a, a site that um, uh, is involved in the gating of the, of the channel. So, and that interaction is very voltage dependent, so it's only going to affect a certain number of cells. But the bottom line is the, the use of those drugs in humans to treat hypertension came with almost a zero side effect profile. <clears throat> I mean, they were very well tolerated, at very few um, catastrophic events, very hard to kill patients, actually, with those drugs. Um, moreover, they got into the brain. And it, when I initially realized that I, I really couldn't believe it because those channels are every place in the brain. And, um, they're, every neuron that I've ever recorded from has got those channels and they're involved in a lot of important functions. They're one of the ways in, in which most neurons count spikes. Right? You think about it, a neuron wants to regulate its activity, how does it know how often it's spiked? And these high-voltage-activated L-type calcium channels are one way um, in the parasomatic region that I think cells have got a little ticker for spikes. So how is it that inhibiting those channels wouldn't have a whole range of nasty side effects? And again, it, I think it turns out that, that at the doses, at the concentrations that are therapeutically useful, Number one, so there's a relatively low concentration, so it's partial inhibition. Second, the interaction of that drug with the channel is very voltage dependent, so it ends up targeting a very specific subset of neurons, and particularly the ones that are pacemaking. In fact, you think about it from the cardiovascular standpoint, that's exactly what they were going after, right? Cells that are sitting a little bit depolarized in contrast to a cortical pyramidal cell, which may spend a lot of its time around minus 75, these cells were sitting 10, 15 millivolts more depolarized. So low doses, cellular specificity created by the nature of the drug, the fact it was a negative allosteric modulator rather than a channel blocker, um, created a very benign side effect profile for those compounds. So the bottom line is, to get back to your question, I, I think it's an incredibly difficult problem figuring out what to target especially when you're going after basic cellular mechanisms. The side effect profile could be incredibly nasty. But sometimes you get lucky. And I think in this particular case, we are lucky. There's a combination of features of the drug that was available, the dose range at which it worked, how it, you know, the, the cells that it targeted, 
And, it, and the other, one of the things we've done recently, though, is to go in and look at what chronic treatment with that drug does to compactant neurons. And astonishingly enough, they adapt in a very constructive way. Uh, they, they don't upregulate other calcium channels, which is the first thing we thought they would do. Right? You block one, let me upgrade, upregulate another one. They don't do that. They lower the mitochondrial oxidant stress, comes down, mitochondrial mass rises, and mitophagy slows. They simply let the mitochondrial pool get larger to meet the bioenergetic needs. Now, is there another, another side effect? If I were to set these mice loose behind the McDonald's, I am sure that the cats would get them sooner than the wild-type mice. Right? But for Parkinson's disease, I mean, again, if you think about it, the, I think there's an evolutionary reason, reason why these channels have been there. They've been, but we don't face the same challenges, particularly for over the age of 50. We're not being chased by lions or tigers or bears, oh my. Um, we're, we live pretty sedentary lives that are unfortunately not so interesting and not so challenging. Um, and so I don't think we need. I don't think we need. I don't think we need that capacity to sustain firing for long periods of time. So wouldn't we know that uh, clinical trials are expensive and long, as you said? Uh, your clinical trial has been going on for a while. When's it? When does the answer come? Of what what the, does radipine really helps with? Right. Pro progress in Parkinson's. Right. So the the first data will be analyzed in the spring of 2018. It was a five-year trial. It's the first five-year neuroprotection trial that NIH has run. All the rest of the trials have been much shorter term with like one-year drug exposures. We sort of refused to go along with them. Um, when we were negotiating this, we demanded that patients be exposed for 36 months because it's a slowly progressing disease and we wanted to give the drug a fair chance. Um, so, yeah, it will, we'll know fairly soon whether this is going to slow the progression of the disease in about a year. One of the things about this, this trial, though, that I, I also think is interesting, which shows the sort of politics of all this and about theories about Parkinson's disease, is that this trial is being run with a generic. No one will make any money from if this trial succeeds. The only people who are going to benefit are... Parkinson's disease patients and people at risk for Parkinson's disease. You see all this hype about these other mechanisms, in my view, it, to some extent, that's about who's going to make money if, in fact, that turns out to be the mechanism of the disease. Because all of those other kinds of disease mechanisms have got therapeutic strategies with IP protection and... Do you have costs. any IP at stake? No. I won't make anything. <laughs> so I, keep, I keep telling my wife, good karma is what I'm after. <laughs> what, are, what are the other clinical trials happening right now? I mean, because it just has to be better. Yours just has to be better than any of the other ones. Is that right? How does it work? It has to be better than nothing. Better than nothing, yeah. There is, or there's no proven strategy for slowing the progression of Parkinson's disease. So... Yeah, the bar is pretty low. So, so what have all the, these ones that have failed? They've targeted the alpha synuclein aggregation. No, 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 no. So, um, there are a lot of things that have been tested. Okay, so um, 
Oh, the nutraceuticals and stuff. Have been nutraceuticals, um, CoQ10 has been tried. So, that, I mean, to some extent, mitochondrial oxidant stress as a as a mechanism has been tried. The trouble with it is, is that with uh, with those trials, there was no evidence that, in fact, those drugs got into the brain at sufficient in sufficient quantities to actually do anything. Um, inflammation has been tested. Um, there have been. Um, and some tests of about proteostatic dysfunction, but I get nothing, nothing very focused or with much of a scientific rationale. So I mean, one of the other things about this that I think that we need <laughs> is we need for basic science to lead to a discovery which leads to a treatment for a disease. Because I'm firmly convinced that rational drug design, rational therapy design is the is what we ought to be doing as opposed to relying upon serendipity or accident to for the development of new therapies. Now obviously in the cancer field this works. But the in the neurodegeneration field, there's no example. Yes. Uh, maybe there is one in ALS that's coming. Um, but but we need we need payoffs. We need clinical payoffs, translational payoffs for um, some of the basic science work that we do. I mean, this is an, an example of where, you know, we, we looked at compact neurons because I couldn't get Carlos to look at them, um, and at least in the same way, uh, or, or Charlie to look at them. I think I, I don't know how many people I asked. I said, God, Jim, just go do your own work, and we're going to do our work. Um, but that was a mistake. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, but we went in with uh, just eyes wide open, just saying, okay, this is a vulnerable population. Let's try and do what we do. Let's try and understand the basic physiology of these cells um, and see if there isn't something that jumps out at us. And, um, you know, the story has evolved over the course of the last 10 years. I mean, our understanding of it has evolved, our ideas about we initially thought that calcium itself, was, because they flux so much calcium, and it was not something that we discovered had been known for some time, but that, that, that in and of itself was the problem. And I don't think that that's true anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was an attempt to understand the basic biology. Understanding that basic biology has got to help us understand disease. And, um, and so I, I think we need a few successes to convince... Funding agencies, both public and private, seems to, to fund me that science. So much of this is about just understanding the range and dimensions of homeostatic plasticity in cells, intrinsically, and in terms of the circuit arrangements and networks. And I, I just wondered how that's going to evolve and line up in terms of understanding how cells respond to different changes in genetic or epigenetic factors, external factors, and. What? I know, I'm sorry. Charlie's pointing at his, his watch. Okay, I was just trying to say something, but I'm not going to say anything. I mean, this, is a, this is a huge topic, right? It's a huge topic. I know, I know it's a huge topic, but I, 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 you're the guy to kind of you know, comment on this because you've got the pervasive <laughs> sense of it all. But I'm not, we're not going to start anything. Then we're going to end it there, and okay. then you'll come back and talk to us Talk about, about it another time. Yes, because he's a friend of the pod now, and he'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jim, for being with us on uh, Neuroscientist Talk Shop. My pleasure.